this shows who's in control. And he, he takes that horn and he destroys him, you know. He raised him up to power and then he destroyed him. And he used him for his own purposes. Hello and welcome to the Gen 821 Podcast, Season 2, Episode 7. I'm your host, Cole Borders. With me are Bill Borders and Sterling Borders. On this episode, we discuss Daniel 7. This chapter includes the vision of the Son of Man given his eternal kingdom. We talk about some interpretations of Daniel's vision, how to read a chapter like this, and why it is important to study difficult sections of Scripture. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you want to contact us, our social accounts and email are in the show notes. Thank you for listening. We are grateful you are here. Okay, so Dad, you remember I told you I was I was listening to that movie Ed Astra. Yes, this morning. Ed Astra. Have you, have you seen that? I have not seen that. Do Is you, that Brad Pitt in space? Yeah, Brad Pitt and what Tommy are you calling the movie? I think it's called Ed Astra. It's called Ed. 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 Oh, okay. Is there something like, to that? I think that's Latin. It's Ed like Astra. He stars. was an old actor. Yeah, yeah. Oh on Mary Tyler Moore. He that also guy. was Latin. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. He played Brad Pitt's dad. Ed. <laughs> In the movie. Ad Asner. <laughs> Ed Asner. That's what they named the movie. Okay. Is there something to that name, Ad Astra, that's just going yes. way over my yes. head? I think yes. it means something. It's it Latin means, for something at the stars. It's Spanish for the Nino. Okay. <laughs> um, Why do you ask? Okay. I was just going to. So I was listening. I was. I had it on the TV, but I wasn't really watching it. I was just listening as I was working in the shop. And. Yes. I'm hoping you can remember. Yes. Why did he have to blow up that? What did he, what was Tommy Lee Jones doing? Apparently, there was a rebellion on the ship. They all wanted to go back. That was. Ed Asner did not want to go back. He wanted to stay out there. He killed them. And in the rebellion, apparently something was damaged and it was sending a pulse. Throughout oh. the solar system that was going to destroy Earth. Okay. The Very pulse believable. was coming from the ship. The pulse was coming from the ship, so he needed to take the nuclear weapon. That nuclear seems weapon a little... There. that. I mean, Nuclear. What? That's, that's, that seems far-fetched. Well, <laughs> what? I mean, the pulse part is... I, I'm okay with the pulse part. I think Do you I, remember at the start of the movie where he fell off this huge... Yes. Tower, yeah, that was from one of the pulses coming through. Okay, Jolly but I thought maybe that he had triggered something from like a nearby star. No, or no, something. it was that, it's and so he had to go blow spaceship. it up. And he used the blast. He, he took off the shield and went through the rings. Uh, yeah, I did. I, I saw some, <laughs> which of that. is so believable. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It was kind of sad, though, because he gets to see his dad. He hasn't seen in 30 years. Just me and his dad is nuts. He's like, his dad says, I haven't thought of home or you or your mother once since I left. It's like, what? He was crazy. Yeah. So, Ad Astra is Latin for to the stars or to the heavens, and it comes from an idiom. Movie. It, no, it comes from an idiom in Virgil, in the Aeneid, where it says, Blessings on your manhood, my boy. That's the path to heaven. That Virgil. Through hardships to the stars. 
Um, you know what's interesting in that movie? What? There's a lot of talk about his resting heart rate in that movie. Yes, yes, it is a lot. I know, like it, you. And his is in the in the beginning. I remember. I, uh, I can't remember what he was doing, but anyway, his, he woke up and he was like, "My resting heart rate was 45." And then, and then there's one point when the uh, people come in to talk to him before they're about to send him off, and they're like, "We understand your." Heart rate never got above 80 when you were falling, you know, from yes. the sky and all that. I just thought, that's kind of crazy. Did I'm you like, see the uh, baboons eat the guy's face? Yes. That, I saw that. There were space baboons? Well, you know movie? how they sent monkeys in space. Oh, okay. Point. Sure. So there's like a space station out there that sent off this pulse, like uh, SOS kind of. <laughs> and so they go over to investigate, and they go in, and they just see a guy there, you know. And what had happened in the monkeys had gone crazy from being in space forever, got loose. And ate and, his face. Yes. And the even movie, people that go to rescue him, he killed yeah. one of them. Yeah. The, movie the monkeys was, or the guy? The monkey. No, there was nobody left on that ship when they got there. It was Brad Pitt oh. and another guy go over yeah. there to help. And the only way he kills comes the back. monkey is he gets through, shuts the door, opens the airlock, and he just blows up like in a vacuum. Wow. This is like a reverse Planet of the Apes. It was a, I mean, I don't know. Exactly. It was an interesting movie, I guess. I don't know. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, it was okay. You remember that movie, Interstellar? Yeah. I do remember that. You know how they're always talking about Murph. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They start that movie with like, this is, they're saying Said this that is the one. last year for Okra. Yes. Ever. Yes. yes. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> you know what? I thought all that was pretty clever about the farming and all that. Yeah. I thought all it was pretty clever, all that. And yes. that's that one where he's like, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, that is, that's that yes, one. That's that, that is movie. the movie. He drives up Murph. in a spaceship. Yeah. Yeah. All right. He ends up in a Tesseract. Well, a Tesseract. No, <laughs> that's, that's Avengers. No, that's the thing that he ends up in. It's that it where he goes through like the... The library oh, thing. That was all too You call weird. that something? You call that? Yeah, that's, that's a thing? That's called a Tesseract. What? I thought that was that cube from the it Avengers movie. But that's a different kind of thing. Well, I thought that was thing. lame. That part was so lame to me. I didn't get it at all. Yes. Yes, it was. <clears throat> I didn't like the rest of it, it was, was kind of cool. Extremely lame. Like the, when they display the time differences when they're on the yes. planet and they come back come and back. spin all. I think all oh, that's cool. Yeah. Like that's neat because theoretically, cool. I guess think that's true. Or could happen, but and then the ending where he's in that library looking thing is so stupid. Yes, it was. Stupid. I didn't get it at all. Yes. <laughs> he sends a message back to himself yeah. in the library. Think about it a little bit. Mm. Ryan Johnson direct that? Um, who? Ryan Johnson. I have no idea. Mm. Not a clue. All right. But that's Sorry. one of the first movies that ha- I've seen that Harry and the Henderson's dad in a long time. Oh, he's I been in a like, lot of things. And then, but I feel like I see him all the time now, yeah. but I feel like I didn't see him for a long while. I think he was in some things. You just didn't see it. Um, maybe. If they're rated R, probably didn't see Yet it. Yet another movie where we tried to save Matt Damon and it cost everybody <laughs> everything. <laughs> that's yeah, true. I forgot about that's that. That's true. I forget yeah, he was Damon, in that. What a rascal. Matt Damon. That he gets was lost a- on a planet. You just need to stay away. Yeah. That's the end of that. Yeah. Just let's, yeah. Let's just keep him at a house <laughs> somewhere. Relaxing. Farm crypto. Stop sending him at. all over the place. Figuring yeah. out problems on a chalkboard yeah. and a 
far, yeah, yeah, farm and crypto. Yes, yeah, that's right. In yeah, many ways, he was the best of us. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, today we're supposed to be talking about Daniel chapter seven, and um, we're just going to go through this section by section. Was my idea mainly because the the idea originally was to talk about verse thirteen and fourteen, and then. I kind of said, well, let's just talk about the whole thing. And I specifically have a couple things that stood out to me when I was reading over this uh, this morning. In the first section, which I'll call verses one through eight, as mm-hmm. as the Bible, you know, comes with those headings that the authors put in there. <laughs> Abraham put in, yeah, the Abraham, yeah, that Moses put in there or whatever. And then there's a. A throne room scene with the Ancient of Days, and then there's um, another, then there's the 13 and 14, and then some interpretation of the vision. So um, I'll start out, if that's all right, in, verses, in verse 2, I guess it is. So I read this this morning, and I got to verse 2, and just when you're preparing to talk in, about a chapter— I guess things stand out more than they do when you're just reading on your own. So I see that phrase, the four winds of heaven, in verse 2. And I thought, hmm, that's a phrase I read throughout. or I've seen it in multiple passages, but I'm thinking, well, let's let's talk about what that means. So um, I looked at that some. And then right after that, it says the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So I want to touch on the four winds of heaven and the great sea. And so I'm curious if either one of you have anything to say about those specifically. If you don't, that's fine. I do. What do you have to say? Um, So that the four winds of heaven. So I just looked through that because I was thinking, well, what exactly does that mean? Right. Um, and so it's mentioned in Daniel eight eight. It's mentioned in eleven Daniel eleven four Ezekiel thirty seven Zechariah two Revelation seven Jeremiah forty nine. And so I'll just read a few of those. In Daniel eight eight, it says, uh, "Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead." Of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So in that passage, I'm saying it seems to indicate like a direction or amount of area, something like that. I think it's just the four points of the compass. Or the four points of the compass. I mean, like just a northerly wind, southerly wind, that kind of thing. That's what I took it as. Okay. You're saying in that passage or always? I think generally when it's used, of course— yeah, no, I, I think, know. but Dan- I think that's probably what he's talking about. The Daniel eleven seems to be the same way. Um, in Ezekiel thirty-seven, that's the dry bones passage. He says, "Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God: Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live." So there, I think what you're describing would apply as well. There was one that was. Um, Let's see. So what about like in Revelation 7? 
it says, now it's a little different, Revelation 7, it says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. The rest of the passages, I think, say four winds of heaven. Um, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And so it says the four winds of the earth, and it seems to me like, okay, a couple thoughts. It seems to me like, it's referring to an act of judgment. And I also would say almost everywhere I found this phrase, there's it's around some kind of a judgment or something that's happening there or some kind of a nation rising, uh, nation falling. Yeah, and I think that like in Daniel 7 where you're talking about the four winds of heaven blowing across the sea and then the four great beasts coming up from the sea, I think what it means is God is the one that's producing this. Yeah. It's not just happening on its own. Yeah. I have a little, I have even a broader view, I think of all of those things. So I think generally wind because of the name, because of the, the Greek connotation for pneumos wind is generally always is accompanying any appearance of a, of a heavenly being and certainly God himself, some kind of spirit. Some, so spirit spirit is usually accompanying with wind, both sometimes when they manifest physically in the world, like at Sinai or like at acts two, or when God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, it just seems like, and then even, you know, from the very beginning of scripture, when God breathes into man, you know, that that connotation of wind and breath and, and kind of even Jesus refers to the unmoving when you can't see it, but it things move that almost always connotates, you know, actions that God is making or the spirit yeah. is making in the world. It's not just happening. Right. It's not just own. happening on its own. It's unseen. It's the unseen mover moving yes. things. Yeah. Yeah, and then secondly, I would say, so then also it does seem like the other larger connotation throughout the Bible is that the sea typically, you know, is is corresponds with the nations. And that's just not right. that's not just a biblical thing. That you can find that in other um ancient Near Eastern literature as well that kind of refers to the nations as the sea. The land is yeah. so tied to the Jews. Right. That they're and kind then of the sea is yeah. more representative of the Gentiles. Right. And you see that in Revelation of the land beast and the sea right. beast and that kind of thing. So I think, but before we get in, I know we were going to jump right into verse, verse. I would just say, why would we spend time talking on this just a little bit? I mean, because I think when most people think of Daniel, they know of Daniel in the lion's den, or they know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This chapter here for instance is very big on prophecy and it's going to prophesy about these four beasts which we're going to see represent four different kingdoms and i would say one of the main reasons i believe that scripture is inspired by god is because the fulfillment of prophecies like we read right here in daniel so i think like we talked about, I think in the last podcast where we talked about the need to read your Bible and study the Old Testament, people just kind of check out when it comes to these prophecies because it's difficult. But I think you just need to get into them and try to study them like you just brought up. All right, what's this, what's this talking about? What's the four winds? What's the sea represent? All that stuff builds people's faith, in my opinion, is very much worth looking into. 
which is why we're doing this today. Yeah, I agree with that. I, you know, I think from personally, this part of my Bible study is, well, I want to say this part. I mean, okay, so we've got the beasts. We've also got the horns, which I guess a horn would probably represent a king most of the time or some kind of power, something like that. I am either the least interested or have spent the least amount of time saying, okay, how can I go in and pinpoint what each of these beasts are? And then now I could probably do that, but like the trying to line up those 10 horns with something, I I don't, um, that is not of something I spend a lot of time on personally. So I guess I'm curious since you brought up your point. What do you guys feel the importance of when you see a prophecy like that, thinking, okay, has this been fulfilled or do, you know, how do I go out and research this? Yeah, I think it's and very is it important to do that. I think it is very important. And you may never, you know, you can read a lot of theologians who have a lot of degrees and they differ on the fulfillment of, especially the next chapter. I mean, yeah. It's so uh, intense in the um, degree of prophecy. There's a lot of agreement on Chapter 7's pretty much agreement. As far as the beasts go? The beasts and that kind of thing. But I think it's very important to to learn what these things are as best as you can learn. I mean, we're going to learn about the Son of Man receiving a kingdom. Yeah. Well— has that happened? Is it going to happen? What's he talking about there? I mean, I think that's very important. Yeah, yeah I guess so. I, I agree with that. But <laughs> like those, the 10 horns, for example. Well, there's other things I can point to, to me to say, well, I think that's already happened. Right. So now is it the burden on me to go out and then be able to identify each one of those 10 horns? I think it would be great if you could. Uh, again, that's that's a particular part of this chapter that where there's not a lot of agreement. Yeah, uh, I think I have an opinion on it, and maybe it's is right. yours the right opinion? Oh, I would think so, <laughs> or I wouldn't have it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to say that because I, that is for sure one of the weakest parts, and some of that comes to like when you have something like that and you come in with a view already. It can be hard yes. to investigate that and not just want to find the answer that matches with your view. You know, when I read the Bible, like, okay, the ten horns or whatever it is in the Scripture, I'm thinking there's just so many things that God has seen fit to leave recorded for us, and that's there. Yeah. Well, there's a whole lot of things that could have been put in Scripture that we're not, that we don't have. And so I think it's there for our benefit. And so all of those things— when I read the Bible, I mean, when it's a list of names in the Old Testament or whether it's the law in Leviticus or whatever it is, I don't skip over any of that stuff. I try to read it and think about it and try to gain from it whatever ideas I can get from it because God has seen fit to deliver that to us to this day. And I think it's probably for our benefit to learn those things. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's for our benefit, but I think everything that's recorded for our, is for our benefit, but I don't think everything benefits the same people the same right, way. Right. So, for instance, when you have long lists of genealogy and chronicles or something, you know, okay, 
we can just by understanding what the names mean, we can probably get something out of that. But it was definitely of much greater benefit to the Jews of the second temple period to have that list of names than it ever. So yeah, it's all for our benefit, but the further we get away from some of these analogies, not to say that there's no value, obviously investigating to what they are, but not everybody's going to benefit from the same passages in the same way. And then I think there's some things just because we're time and distance removed from the culture. There's some things that no matter how much we may not, we, we may never never come to an exact, but that doesn't mean it wasn't for somebody's benefit somewhere and potentially much closer to the time frame than ours. But one of those things, like when we read a list of names, one of the things I think about is I may not ever know everything about these people or anything about these people, but it makes me think God knows about them right? and he hadn't forgotten them and he hadn't forgotten what they did. Or like the people that came back and tried to rebuild Jerusalem after the captivity, and, and you read all those lists of names and that kind of thing. Well, it meant something to God, and right. he hadn't forgotten it. Right. So that kind of gives me a little hope about my little life, you know. And what sure. He, does he know about me or does he not? That's true. Like the mosquito's foot. There you go. That's right. Um, so one of the questions I was going to ask at the end, if there was time, but since we're talking about this, I think it's better to bring it up now. And you kind of addressed it already, but what, so when you read something like this, I have to think, or I, it comes into my mind, why is a prophecy like this written in the Bible? You know, is it, who's this for? Doesn't that come off as a question that comes to your mind? It does me, like, why is this in there? I think it's to show the inspiration of Scripture. To who? To anyone that comes across it, but. It's not just to say these four kingdoms are coming, but this scripture is to say that in the fourth kingdom, the Son of Man is going to receive his kingdom. Yeah. And it's going to overtake them all. Okay. So when you say And so when you see the proof of what he's already said happen, and then he says this is going to happen, well, I think for the people living then, it meant a little bit more to them. I mean, what... As like hope, you mean? As hope, and I'm basing my life on what... I think I'm reading the scriptures here. I'm going to try to live according to that because I think um, God has promised me eternal life. Well, what are you basing that on? You know, I had a guy come to our house to do some work one time, and I had a book sitting there, and it was called Pagan Christianity. And it wasn't about what the guy thought he was about, but he was an atheist, you know. And he saw that book, and he loved that title. And he began to tell me how the whole thing about Jesus and God is just a myth. And the only reason that church and all that stuff goes on is because kids are just brainwashed in Sunday school and they can't think outside the box. And, you know, that there is no God. He was telling me, which I thought was ridiculous. He saw the book sitting there. And beside that book was a commentary on Daniel written by Sir Isaac Newton, one of the wisest guys that's ever lived. And, you know, he was saying, you just believe in God and Jesus because you can't think outside the box. Well, I guess Sir Isaac Newton just couldn't quite see outside the box. You know, he thought like everybody else. He decided to write commentary on Scripture. I mean, we're basing our life and putting all our hope on Jesus Christ. Well, why would we do that? Is it because just we learned in Sunday school, or is there something more to it? I think there's something more to it. And part of that is the prophecies that I see written that were fulfilled to a T. And so when God says something's going to happen— it's going to happen. Yeah. 
And so when he promised us eternal life and he promised us forgiveness of sins based on what his son did, that means a little bit more when I see that everything he, he's been faithful to everything he said was going to happen happened. Well, okay, yes, I agree with that 100%. The other part of that that comes to mind is how this kind of chapter affected the characters we read about in the New Testament. And to me, that just makes them even more so thinking about how, you know, Jerusalem or the kingdom of or the Israelites have to come back into this full authority, right? And I assume a chapter like this is fuel for that kind of thinking. Am I right? Yeah. Who who are you talking about? Just the New Testament characters. So like, you know, even the apostles after the resurrection, they still ask him, you know, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? Because is a passage like this, along with many others, fuel for that thinking? Yeah. And, And then... But it hits us totally different, right? You know, yeah. so the I think that's a good thing to think about when reading is how does this impact them versus now seeing more of the story as we do? You know what I'm yeah, saying? I do, and I think it's obviously it probably has the greatest impact on the Jewish believers of the first century who could you know look back and have tremendous. Uh, well, if you're thinking about a Jewish believer in the first century we kind of take it for granted that we should believe in Jesus because he's had all authority. But if you think about from their perspective, it's like, well, who is our God? It's a crucified criminal, you know, and where is he now and what is he doing and that kind of thing. And so I think this chapter has a lot to say about, you know, who he is and why you should believe in him and, and the authority that he has. And I think that's really one of the underlying things that I was going to bring up at the end is really just the, what this has to say about authority and different types of authority and, and how, how those things differ. But that's probably a point that's better made at the end. Really. Okay. Well, let's, I've, I really only got two points I want to make right here at the beginning. Okay. And then, um, and Sterling, you started to touch on one, but the four winds of heaven in verse two, and then we'll just go through and try yeah. to get through this whole thing. So the four winds of heaven, is it safe to assume? And the reason I stop there is so when you see, if you're studying your Bible and you see that phrase, you know, should it call something to mind and what should it call to mind? Yeah. And right. I, and I think one of those things that it calls to mind that I wanted to kind of build on a little bit more is that idea that, you know, that there is an unseen force that's causing things to happen in the world. Um, so I, I listened once to a podcast where Brian Cox, who's a, who's a world renowned physicist um, was talking about that. I think somebody was asking him about the existence of a spirit or something that's controlling, you know, that, that is more us. And they were asking, they essentially were asking about the existence of existence of a soul. And Brian Cox was basically saying, well, when we, when we, you know, get down to what's in, what animates you. You know, we know that you have cells and nerves and we know that we can further break those down to atoms and we can pretty well chart everything that's in you. And, you know, I don't see anything that resembles a soul or a spirit. <laughs> and so to him, you know, it's all, and to many people, it's, if it's not a material thing that could exist, if it's not something that I could measure and quantify and get down to an atomistic kind of interpretation, then it just must not exist. But, 
you know, we obviously know that's not the case. And in fact, I think it's a little bit, this is not at all a dig to something that I know nothing about, which is astrophysics, but you know, but there's all kinds of things on a quantum level that we don't know about that seem to pop in and out of existence. And there's, you know, there's a whole range of things. So it's kind of disingenuous to him to say, well, we've got it all figured out when we know we don't have it all figured out in the material universe. And what we see in passages like this is, is no, there's a whole underlying set of authorities and powers and things. And just like the ancient people, you know, could didn't see the wind, but see the effect of it blowing, you know, we we've come really far in understanding the material world, but we haven't come that far when we forget, you know, this most basic tenet here in the beginning of Daniel chapter seven. Very good. So when we see that phrase, is it, are we in agreement? We could say that it's direction, but it seems to me it, everywhere I read it, it, it is hand in hand with God's about to do or he's doing something. There's some kind of an action and it's usually on some kind of a grandish scale, like nation falling, right. rising, something like that. Right. So you see that phrase, just call that to mind. And I think that's the, one of the things you pick up doing this kind of a deeper study. Right. Because you see these same phrases all yes. throughout in these same so the other one is the great sea. Um, and, Stone, you started to talk on this, but I think this is a very interesting topic specifically. Um, so Genesis one twenty one, God created the great sea creatures. The word there is tanim, which is um, a sea serpent or a jackal, a dragon, sea monster, serpent, or whale. Um, and as far as I understand, I've heard this from multiple sources in the past that um, in the ancient Near Eastern religions, I don't know, whatever you want to call them, um, their gods or whatever, their dwelling was in the sea. Okay? That's what they said. That that they were, some of them were born in the sea, like came up out of the, the waters kind of represented. Um, in the Old Testament, we see characters, the Leviathan, Rahab, uh, that Tanim, those are all sea creatures, and they all represent kind of this chaos-type uh, working. And as you read through the Bible, I see a, a picture being painted that shows the chaos of the sea is kind of the opposition to God in some ways. And that might be um, to show that God is ruler over the other gods of the nations because they paint this kind of picture of God being in control of this chaos of the sea. And I've kind of, that's Michael Heiser talks about that kind of thing a lot. And he's got a lot of good things to say about that if he's right. So for example, Psalm 74, 13, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Isaiah 27, 1. In that day, the Lord will, uh, with his hard, uh, I'm sorry, it was Isaiah 27, 1. In that day, the Lord, with his um, hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing servant, Leviathan, he, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is this is in the sea, just to kind of show God's dominance over this chaos sea creature. And then, just a little further, Jeremiah fifty one, Nebuchadnezzar is called that Tanim, that sea creature, and so is Pharaoh and Ezekiel is called that sea. And they all represent this opposition to God. 
So what I'm saying is by that, when you see that phrase, and it's in the Bible quite a bit in the Old Testament, something to do with the sea, you know, again, what should you call to, to mind? Just like the four winds, you should call to mind something that is opposition to um, or against God or or opposed to, or there's some kind of a chaos element there. It's not, there's not a positive thing coming up out of the sea anywhere that I can find, as best I can recall. And then one, in, one further point to take that into the New Testament to think about how this would impact them is just thinking about when Jesus has control over the sea on multiple occasions, you know, how would that impact their thinking? Because they say things like, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And I think there's maybe, possibly, some worldview there that we're missing out on because we, it's kind of hard to pick up on this sea imagery in connection because if we don't know the ancient Near Eastern religion. So it kind of, you kind of just miss all that altogether. You understand what I'm saying? You know, in Revelation 21, when you see New Jerusalem coming down, he says there is no longer any sea. Yeah, there, and so I think it does represent the fact that you know there were Jews and Gentiles, God's people, and those who are not God's people. But now in the New Jerusalem, there is more of this group that can't be God's people. You know, that's that's done with. There is no more sea. Yeah. We're all God's people. Can I, be. I think that. The point, I'm glad you, you hit on both the passages that I was thinking of, which is Jesus walking in the water and Psalm 74. But of all the things, you think of all the miracles that Jesus could have performed. Like, it, it's weird. Like, you think, well, could Jesus have flown or, yeah. done, or done some of these really outward shows of power? I mean, sure, but he doesn't. But one of the really re- weird ones that he does is he walks on water. And so, you know, and you think about it, it's like, there's a reason why he chose to go down that path. And I, and I, there's one of two ways in my head, and I'm sure there's multiple ways of looking at this. There's one of two things that I think Jesus is expressing there. I think one is, is a connection with the creation of the world where the spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. And then Jesus does a very similar kind of thing, very very physically where he's walking across the waters. That's one way of interpreting it. I think another way of interpreting it is that Jesus happens to be in the Decapolis, which is a, uh, which is a very, you know, a Greek portion. That's obviously there's Jews there, but there's a lot of Greeks there. And then after, you know, teaching and performing the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, then he walks across water. He walks over, you know, and shows his, reign over the Gentile nations that are the sea. And I think either one of those could be a possibility there, but it, but to me, it seems like that's not in there by accident. And so when he, especially when he chooses to, to execute a miracle that's so outwardly physically unbelievable, you know? So I I think, yeah, we should take notice anytime a sea or something is being, because there's so much in the Bible that talks about, you know, the sea, the parting of the seas, calming the seas, walking over the seas, the spirit being over the face of the waters. So I think all of that definitely has a rich biblical, it's a rich vein of biblical study for sure. Um, okay, so I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I just have to ask. <laughs> if, if you're in agreement with what I'm saying about how there, 
the Bible seems to represent things in the sea coming out of the sea as some kind of an opposition to uh, God, or that's the, there's a chaos element in the sea. Are y'all okay with that? I know that is very um, mainstream thought. I'm on the fence on that stuff. But go ahead. Well, so the, and I'm not so I, I see it and then I also don't see it. It's, it's sometimes it's hard to see things when you don't have the same worldview, I feel like. Um, but so the question I mull over in my head about that is. So the passages I read and there's more. The Isaiah 27, the, the Psalm 74 they definitely assert God's reign over the sea or rule over the sea, and Jesus does the same. And then there's other passages that talk about boundaries for the sea as if there's a need to put a fence around it or something. So the question I come, I ask is, and then maybe in the ten plagues, you know, I, I've heard that multiple places too, that the ten plagues were to show God's dominance over the gods of Egypt. I'm sure you've all heard that, uh, probably from Michael Heiser. I think I've heard it other places. So the question I ask is, if that is the case, is that the work, and we read it in our Bibles, is that the work of the writers of the Bible, or is that the work of the Holy Spirit? And I know that's a difficult question. That is what the work of the writers are? To represent this idea that our God is stronger than your God's. Yeah. You know what That's I'm saying? That's where I kind of gum down against the whole chaos thing. Mm-hmm. I know that is the uh, what other religions taught, ancient religions, that there was chaos. And and Michael Hyder's big on showing that God came and made order of chaos. I mean, I don't see creation as like that. Um, <clears throat> what if, though, but the, what I'm referring to— but there are their stories do represent like several of their gods being created in the sea, and yeah. then they're so I, it's it's not necessarily. Go ahead. Go well, ahead I would take this say. for instance. He stirs up the sea, and these four beasts come out, which we're going to see are four kingdoms. Yeah, I mean, it's not like God is making order out of chaos he stirs up the sea and he raises up the four kingdoms mm-hmm. it's not like some other god did that yeah he did that mm-hmm. this was all in his plan you know what i'm saying it's not like making order out of chaos there this He's is said, well now these four kingdoms don't represent godly kingdoms no but god definitely uses them that, yeah that's the and Uses people. He uses Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. He uses Cyrus. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar kind of became devoted to God after he went through what he did. So I'm just, I'm the only reason I said the four kingdoms aren't godly kingdoms is to represent stuff that comes up out of the sea yeah. is not a, are not godly things usually. I think it would be more of they're not uh, Jewish. They're Gentile. I think. Sure. But how, how do I know that? I don't know. But I think that's what that means. But God still uses them to promote his kingdom. I mean, the, the kingdom that's given to Jesus doesn't come up out of the sea. Right, right. So that's what I mean by it. Stur, do you know what I'm saying? Do you I do have know what you're saying. Well, that? you have two different. So you've, as far as I know, you've asked two questions there. And I think your first question was, is this 
you said something along the lines of, is this the work of the spirit or is this an idea of man, right? Yeah. Is the author trying to promote an idea right? with this kind of writing? So the answer to that is yes in both directions. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's, so yes to both. So I think we can we see repeatedly in the Old Testament that the spirit works with the understanding that man has at the time to – educate and to bring across an idea, even when that idea is not physically true. So we know that the ancient near Eastern people didn't understand necessarily that we were on a globe and that, you know, and that all the stars were out there. I mean, they, they knew that we were on a circle of the earth and that the underworld was below us and the heavens were above us. But, you know, did they understand that, Jupiter was a giant rock out there and that, you know, there are stars and then that gets into a whole nother cosmos. So the spirit uses the understanding that man has without telling them without first, like, I don't think the spirit is constrained to say, okay, Ezekiel first, let me give you a science lesson on how all this right. works. And then let me explain. He doesn't do that. You got to use the terminology. He, yeah, he and uses the imagery the term- that people That's understand. right. That's exactly right. And so it's not, uh, it's not a book in that way. Secondly, I would say that the idea that the sea, I, I I'm with you on the idea that the sea generally does not produce righteousness as, as shown in the old Testament with the glaring exception of Ezekiel chapter 47, where the water flowing out from the temple then goes out and it heals most all the other waters of the world, which to me points flows to what dad yeah, flows into the sea and then heals and, and turns that into navigable good waters. And then we see that same. And so then when you go back to what dad was referencing earlier about revelation, where there is no more sea because all of that has been healed and we're just kind of slightly changing up the imagery. So I think that would be my take on both of your questions. Excellent point, Sterling. I think that's really good. Um, All right. Well, y'all ready to move on to the next section? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the next section. um, Are you going to talk about the four beasts? Yeah, Yeah, the four beasts. Okay, good. Okay. All right. Sorry. So just a real quick about the four beasts, and then you guys can say what you want to say. So we've got a beast like a lion with eagle's wings in verse four. We've got a beast like a bear raised up on one side with three ribs between its teeth in verse 5. We've got a beast like a leopard with four wings and fowl and four heads in verse 6. And we've got a fourth beast with large iron teeth and ten horns in verse 7 and 8. So what's going on here? Anyone? You know, um, the other thing that people remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Renegade and Daniel and Lion's Den. And then maybe if you're really good, you remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a statue and was that in chapter two? two? Yeah. And in that dream, there's a statue with the golden head and the silver breast and the um, bronze belly and legs. And then the rest of his legs were clay and iron. And then in, there was a small pebble that became a mountain that crushed that statue. This is the same as that. It's just in different imagery. So, you know, I think generally it's accepted that, well, and it says in Daniel 2, the head of gold is you, Babylon. And, yeah. You know, the greatest kingdom. And then after them were the Medes and Persians, and then Greece, and then Rome. Yep. And so in the days of Rome is when 
God set up his kingdom, crushed all other kingdoms. So I think that's just what we see here again, just in different imagery. I also think we should probably, before everybody gets all wrapped up in the details of all the descriptions of these creatures and that kind of thing, but one of the things that I think is most obvious that we miss and or that is frequently missed in Daniel chapter 7 is the comparison of two different categories of things. And in this, all four of these are described as beasts in comparison to one who is like a man that's coming later. And so there's just categorically a difference. It's a different kind of thing. These four things. And and when you, when you look at the four beasts that are here, they're primarily described in their destructive capability or the amount of they're they're described typically in violent terms some of them much more violent than others um, but all of them you know a beast is something is certainly in that day and time that they were afraid of that could you know that could meet you that would that would terrorize man that would eat man you know so it is a category of of things that is very different than the thing that's going to come after it now, I think that point that is so obvious is frequently missed because we try to dive down specifically into the specifics of the beast, which I'm not saying that there's not value in it, but they what I think was most obvious to us is we should take we should take note of the fact that these are two very different kinds of kingdoms and they're represented by very different kinds of power. Um, and so that to me telescopes exactly what's going to happen, obviously going forward. So when you read this, just to, for listeners sake, how do you go about actually saying, okay, yeah, this is what that represents. I mean, cause you can't, those four kingdoms yeah, like I just mentioned, you don't, how do I get that reading my Bible? Yeah. Well, you're going to get Babylon is the head of gold. You're going to get that reading the Bible. That's where, as we talked before, you have to become a historian somewhat, and you've got to know some history. And you, and you, there's, I think, no doubt who the world powers were one after another, starting with Babylon. Yeah. You know, in this part of the world. And so I think you just have to know history to apply. And that's where reading some good commentaries, I think, comes into play to help learn that. Because like you said, you're not going to read that in Scripture. Yeah, no, no, you're not. I mean, there's like later on in the chapter, he does tell him, oh, this that was referring to kings that right. are going to come, but he doesn't lay it out, Right. which, you know, what's what there. Yeah. Um, okay, so anything any, anything more about this specific section right here? Other than just to say, you know, all these – all these creatures come back again in the book of Revelation. Right. Yeah. And in that same, but, but so Daniel, and this is one of the just the really cool things about the Bible is Daniel is looking forward into history, you know, and is seeing them as a succession of things that are happening. And John is at the very end of this line, and then he's looking at a thing that's fully assembled, and he's seeing kind of like an amalgamation of these things. And so, and to me, that's always been one of the great, um, the great faith builders in in the Bible itself is all these prophets are describing 
they're seeing the same thing from different vantage points in time and space. And, but it's all, once you start to kind of learn to read it that way is you start seeing that, Oh wait, these symbols generally mean the same thing or carry the same context. And that just is really helpful. So you're not, you're, you don't feel like you're reading the Da Vinci code. It's like, you know, it's, it's, they all mean the same thing. And so they're all seeing the same thing. You're not solving one puzzle and then moving to a completely different puzzle that has nothing to do with what you just did over here. It's all the same, which I think is great. Yeah, it is. And that's the great part. And it should let you know that, as you said, they're talking about the same thing. Right. Um, anything to say? Anybody got anything to say about horns? Because that's another one of those words that you hear all in Revelation, of course. But um, anything specific to say? I mean, I, to me, it just means like a king or a power, right? Yeah. I mean, I think horns are used a lot of times in prophecy. Sometimes a horn means a horn, but a lot of. <laughs> right. But right. it also indicates. Like, especially in this kind of like a vision or something yes. like when you see a horn, yes. as far as I know, it represents like a king, a power, something like that. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's in case anybody wants to look at it. If you just flip over a chapter in Daniel chapter eight, it becomes really obvious, you know, where the Medes and the Persians are two horns. And then you have, you know, this other creature, uh, the goat that yeah. has the one horn and then it's broken and four uh-huh. horns come out. Well, if you know just even a modicum of history, you know Medes and Persians, Alexander the Great, he dies real early, Breaks four, up generals. four generals. I mean, it just is – it. so that really doesn't become a tremendous exercise in right. you know, trying to decode something that you can't possibly – it becomes pretty obvious what that means. So, yeah, to me, you know, the horns obviously symbolize – power uh in in some kind of outward way is that something they teach would you learn that in school <laughs> i should know this but you would not learn that I'm, no. no not that that mean i'm not talking about daniel 7 i'm talking about like um, you would, i don't think you would teach you in school out. no i don't think in high school you would learn that maybe uh, maybe no. a an AP history class, you might like the Alexander the Great. You know, he you died might learn about and Alexander the Great and over. then he died pretty early. But I don't think you're going to learn about how his kingdom broke into four and the Seleucids and Ptolemies and all that stuff. I don't. Yeah, think most all that. of that reading I did on my own. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't recall because <laughs> yeah. I was probably absent that day. You if probably it, if it were. was in yeah. school. Yeah. I was. I was legitimately curious about. No, I, I don't. You were just saying if you do anything about history, you know, and well, I'm yeah. thinking. Nobody knows. Well, I guess that's I want, true. Yeah, Maybe that's I what, just <laughs> that's what made me wonder. Probably overstated my case there <laughs> yeah, a little bit. You have to remember how much smarter you are than the average, person. which is not much. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, are we moving on to the next? Sure. Section? Yeah. Okay. So the next section is this kind of almost like a throne room scene, which there's uh, several of these in the Old Testament. Um, and I don't know what you guys want to say. I mean, there's obviously a lot that could be said about this. Um, so it, is there any yeah, specific? I do. I have one. I have an overarching thought that I kind of alluded to earlier, and okay. I think we can start talking about it here. This passage, like so many passages, is about authority. Um, and it's who's going to hold authority or have authority or sway in the kingdoms of men. Uh, and it's, 
its importance is every bit applicable today as it was, even though it's not about anything. You know, this this passage is not about anything in our future per se, but it has tremendous importance for Christians still today because it talks about who reigns every single day. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that we see here in the in So the claims that are made in this passage are going to be repeated in the New Testament, specifically, you know, verse 13 is going to be repeated you know, frequently and the, or, or allusions to verse 13 are going to be made over and over again. And so, and I think who reigns in your life, who decides what happens, you know, why do things happen the way that they happen? These are things that I think we, in all our advancements that we've made today, still struggle with to a tremendous degree. And so when you said, well, why, you know, when we talk about why we, why would we study this? Why would we look at this? Either the claims that this passage is making and the claims that Jesus makes uh, at the very end of his time on earth, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, either those stand or they don't. And, and so, you know, and to me, these are the kinds of passages where it really matters, where this is where there's tremendous benefit for people today to say, who's driving the bus of my family, of my life, of our nation, of our world? You know, is there or do things just randomly happen? Is all there is things we can see? And so when you just flatly reject that there is any powers moving the world, it kind of leaves you in a really scary position that there is just chaos. There is no controlling factor. But that's to me, that's where one of the tremendous benefits to us today of this passage comes from saying, no, there is somebody who has all reign and authority. Yeah, you know, you look at the craziness that's gone on in the world the last two, three years. You know, it's easy to think, well, God has just stepped back out of letting man get what these are. Okay, so when you look at verse 11, it talks about the boastful horn. It's one of the ten horns on the last beat, on the last beast. You know, I have an opinion that they're referring to Nero here, and the horns are referring to the different Caesars. And if that's true, when Nero was reigning, he was killing Christians in horrible ways for three and a half years, I understand. And so if you were a Christian at that time, you know, we think now, what's God doing? You know, because we got the craziness going on in governments all over the world. Well, we don't have that going on in our country. We don't have what Nero was doing yet. Maybe we won't. Maybe we will. I don't know. But <clears throat> this show is who's in control. And he, he takes that horn and he destroys him, you know. He raised him up to power and then he destroyed him. And he used him for his own purposes. And so we can't look at society and what's going on and the craziness and know what's going on. That You know, it kind of goes back to what we talked about before. You got to know your place in the world compared to God. And so this is for building faith. And you say, I don't understand what's going on, but I know this. I got faith in God. Yeah. Because of things like this that we're reading right here. Yeah. Um, and there's a little further down, there's a lot of faith building statements in here, like, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the right. kingdom forever, right. 
forever and ever, you know? <laughs> um, so, all right, one question before we move on on this. Um, again, just thinking about what what we can get out of this is, are we to take anything about kind of how God works, how our place will be when we get to heaven or what we call heaven? You know, does this, is this a glimpse of how God does things there? You know what I'm saying? Does things in heaven? Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it paints a picture of him sitting down with a group of somethings. Yeah. And they're Myriads and they're making and they're making decisions. You know, he's holding court. So apparently, and there's other places that give the same imagery. So are we to take that to, to mean something to us about what it will be like? Or yeah, I, I mean, I take this as this is God showing his his rule over the kingdom of men, just like we learned earlier in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar finally had to learn. He's sitting down here holding court. Deciding what's going to go on on Earth, I think that's what it's a picture of. Over really powerful beasts, like if you were to, if you were to categorize, if you were to draw up these beasts and and what they, if they existed in in the physical format, the way that they were described, these would just be really capable, dreadful predators. You know that could kill everything you know yeah like leopards that can fly you know i mean you know like you can only imagine how terrible yeah. it would be to have a huge cat like be able to just fly over america and kill people so you know all that is described and then his power is just over and above everybody's power and, and he's described as the ancient of days you know this this power that has existed for eternity past yeah. which that's another one of those phrases right that's used throughout right and so he you know and it says you know the and for the rest of the beast their you know their dominion their power were taken away but their lives were prolonged so basically you know he's taking away their power but he's letting them kind of live and everything is kind of laid out on his timetable as much as he wants as far as he wants them to go as much power as he wants them to have or not have you know it clearly shows that to speak to what dad was just saying about nero it kind of shows that well look god's in control of all of this no matter how bleak it looks right now and so because he's in and that's where i think a lot of people are struggled with the idea that God is in control because they look at the terrible things that are happening and they think, why is God allowing these terrible things to happen? But obviously there's very good reasons why these terrible things are happening. And they're frequently, you know, reasons that he has and that are within his rights to have because he has authority and power to do these kinds of things. So, you know, if you are a Christian in the first century and Nero's doing these terrible things, and as I kind of alluded to earlier, you could be, forgiven for seeing there and thinking, well, what is Jesus doing about this? And I think that's, you know, I think that's why stuff like this is in here is for those people to say, well, I'm, you know, I bow down and profess my loyalty to a crucified criminal, you know, who potentially was half a world away from where I'm living. What's he doing about what's happening here? And so I think what we're getting ready to see is that, yes, he sees all those things that are going on right there, and he is doing something about it, 
And it may or may not be in the time frame that you want, but it's in the time frame and with the purposes that he has in mind. It, you know, it reminds me of the souls under the altar in Revelation. Yeah. Out, you know, yeah. how long? Or it also reminds me when John the Baptist in prison and he sends some of his followers yeah. and says, look, are you the one or not? Yeah, yeah. right. He knows yeah. who he is. Right. It's his yeah. cousin. Right. You know, he baptized That's right. him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's not asking, are you the one? He's saying, what am I doing here in prison while you're... Here, you know, doing all these wonderful things. Yeah, I taught a class not that long ago on um, doubt, and it had to deal with John the Baptist. And in that that chapter in Matthew with John the Baptist, there's two different types of doubt that go on. There's John the Baptist who, it seems, has he doesn't lose faith in who Jesus is, but he can't understand why Jesus. And that is compared and contrasted with the Pharisees and the other leaders who have no faith at all, despite the very clear, you know, and he gives the same answer to both. He's, you know, he says to John, he says, go tell John what you lame or healed. Yeah. Yeah, Go tell John what you see. But he says the exact same thing to the Pharisees. He says, you know, you, you see what I'm doing. You know, you know, when the sky is red in the morning that, you know, yeah, that it's going to be, but you have no faith. So there's, you know, you can be forgiven for doubts when you can take the apparent signs that Jesus is doing at face value, but these these other men were not. So, um, all right. Well, on that, let's move on to thirteen, fourteen. I'm going to read these two verses. Okay. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So that was the uh, main two verses as to why I suggested we even study this chapter. And so we're here at the end and let's, Talk about it. What What's happening here, anybody? You know, uh, what I've heard people talk about this, and when I've read many commentaries, because of this phrase of coming on the clouds, you know, it's associated with what Jesus said in Matthew 24 about him coming on the clouds. It's associated with what he told Caiaphas, that you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And so people see this as Jesus' return in judgment. I see this as Jesus going into heaven to receive a kingdom. You know, Luke records right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry and he rides on the colt and the foal, the donkey. He tells a story about a man who goes on a distant journey to receive a kingdom and he comes back to get what he had left these people to get his reward. And the ones that had put to use with the. God gave them. He gave them more. But the ones that didn't want to serve him, he said, bring them here and slay them before me. And so I see this as Jesus has left the earth. It's his ascension into heaven, coming before the Father, coming in the clouds to receive a kingdom, just like he told his uh, followers that he was going to do. But that, I think, is kind of a minority view at least what I've read. Well, so when you say because of the coming on the clouds, which they're right to pull the imagery of coming on the clouds, right. just like these other phrases we've that they're right. But is it possible to look at 
where Daniel is. I mean, he's not right. on earth. That's right. He's in That's he's right. in the heavenly and places. Also a so glory, he can be coming yes. from his perspective, yes. right? And a cloud, I mean, it's often associated with God. You know, when he came down into the tabernacle or when he came onto the mercy seat, he came in a cloud. And so that's part of God's arriving somewhere. You know, it, it's he's spoken of in the prophecies of riding on a cloud, you know. And so that's just part of what God does when he goes somewhere. It's spoken of as being on a cloud. Yeah. So is so is there a um when you read something like this and I'm I'm with you that to me I don't see how you could see it other than this is Jesus come I mean he comes it says and presented before him you know where else is that imagery given and I just think of Hebrews that we talked about before I mean Jesus is presenting something to the ancient of days here um and then he receives the kingdom for it so what yeah. I mean so is this a, are we to say, okay, in this vision, Daniel is seeing what's happening in Acts 2 when Jesus ascended into heaven, or is this somewhere else, or what What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree 100% with what Dad is saying, and yes, I think this is in some ways, he is seeing what's going to unfold um, in the future, and there are so many passages that talk about Jesus going and sitting at the right hand or standing or being at the right hand of the Father that clearly do not reference a complete end times judgment. And the most, one of the most well known ones, I think, is in the very beginning of Psalms 110, where the Lord, where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies thy footstool. So he clearly goes to the Ancient of Days and is there as his dominion is being propagated throughout the world. And I, to me, to, just to go back to what I was saying earlier about the last thing that Jesus says to his followers on earth, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then he proceeds to go up into a cloud, in my opinion, to fulfill exactly what you're getting ready to see right here. And then you go just not that long after that. And then suddenly Stephen's getting stoned and he looks up into heaven and there's Jesus at the right hand of the father. So, you know, all of this just works. This is just another one of those ways. I think the Bible just works so lockstep. Um, Like this ancient thing was written by Daniel over here. And then Jesus says, Jesus makes very clear allusions to Caiaphas in Matthew chapter 26 and other places about how you'll see, you know, the son of man's at the right hand of the power and you'll see him coming on the clouds. And then not, you know, what, within a year after that, you know, Stephen's being stoned and he's, and he's seeing this thing unveiling. And then, you know, a few decades after that, you have John seeing it unfold in the most, clearest way in revelation you know so i really you just can't underplay how important it is to say again these things that just are so lockstep with each other it's not they're not out of sync at all no not out of sync at all despite being written at various times in various different places over you know just centuries and centuries and, and divers centuries. manners in divers <laughs> manners yes you know when jesus sent out the 12 or when he sent out the 70 or even when john the baptist went out their message was repent the kingdom is coming mm-hmm. 
And there's so many of our brothers and sisters that think the kingdom is still coming. Right. And it's not here yet. But it was at hand is what John said. Right. And so, you know, that's what we see. Jesus, like he said in his peril, he went to receive a kingdom. And we see that happen. And like Sterling just said, I think that happened when he left in the cloud there at the start of Acts. Right. He went to receive a kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. And just thinking about it now, like how privileged was Daniel and he didn't even he didn't know at all what he was seeing here. Yeah. yeah. Like he was witnessing right. a vision right. of all authority, you know, of Jesus presenting. Right. I guess I don't know if you um I are we sold on that this is the Acts two? I mean I guess it is, but I, I could because you've got the um I guess it is. I guess it would have to be. What do you mean? Which part? Uh, that this is the Acts two that's when he went to oh, the that's, yeah. yeah, because yeah. is that when he went to present the offering of the cross, or would it have to be in the period between his crucifixion and resurrection? You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. You know, one thing he said to Mary, "Stop hanging on to me because I'm not yet ascended to the Father." Yeah. So, I, so know, he hadn't received it at that point. We know well. You know, maybe I'm making more of that than should be, but I think there's yeah. probably something well, to that. Well, at any rate, you know, at exactly yeah. whatever point this is, I mean, Daniel was seeing Jesus presenting the offering and yeah. it being accepted, and then all authority is is given to him, and he's, you know, given this kingdom that has everlasting dominion, won't pass yeah. away. It's like he's seeing the most important moment in history, doesn't even realize what's what happening here. And I think that's the other point that really needs to be emphasized is the, is the eternal nature of his kingdom, because... As we just mentioned, you compare what he's setting up. Is he setting up the beast versus the son of man? And I kind of alluded this. So there's two main qualitative differences here, I think, between the son of man and the beast. The beasts are primarily depicted, in my opinion, as destroying man. But here you have a son of man who his reign, it appears to be very different. And his his reign is not about destroying man. He is a man. You know, he is a man for men and that his uh, that his kingdom is. So that's that's one way that they're different. The other way that they're different is that the beast reign, as is mentioned in verse 12, is has a finite end. You know, it has it sets up the difference between. These have very clear times and boundaries, and and God sets those times and boundaries, but that's very different than what's described for the Son of Man's kingdom because it doesn't pass away ever. Um, And so, you know, one of the things I think that you can do um, for any of their readers is when you come across a prophecy like this and two things are being set against each other, one of the easiest things to do is ask, okay, what? what qualities or attributes between these things is the writer setting in opposition to each other? And I think even just looking at those, instead of the first thing people do is they try and go down to the nitty gritty and try and get down to these things, but just look in very broad strokes and say, what's being compared and contrasted here and how are they, how are they alike or different? And so I think even just some of those kinds of descriptions are very helpful in understanding what the writer is talking about. And those are frequently the things that people miss that are the most obvious is just looking at, you know, just making lists of how does this compare with the thing that just came before it? 
So, you know, and then you mentioned the other thing, Daniel, you know, so Daniel's seeing all this and he doesn't have any clue. Yeah. And I really like the way the book of Daniel, you want to get crazy. You could talk about Daniel 12, but, um, yeah. you know, but he, he asked at the very end of this book, I think exactly where you were just alluding to. He's like, you know, what are we talking about? Yeah. Here? <laughs> you know, he doesn't know what he's talking yeah. about here. And so it's very obvious that the vision, he, you know, he's even told, I'm like, Hey, this isn't exactly for you. I mean, it may be comforting to you, but this isn't for you. You're going to seal this up for somebody else down the line. So I I think that's really interesting. Very good. Excellent. You know, going back to what you mentioned earlier, Cole, about C, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things he says, one of the marks of his kingdom is all peoples, all nations, populations of all languages are now serving in the in the new Jerusalem. There is no more sea. There's no more people that aren't part of God's people. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gen Eight Two One podcast. We want to ask our listeners to please subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Your reviews will positively impact the success of our show. We also want the opportunity to connect with you. If you have questions or topics you would like us to discuss, please contact us through our social channels or through email. You can find this information in the show notes for this episode. Thank you again for listening.